Welcome to the OPP Africana and South Asian Philosophies podcast series. Please join us to learn from thinkers around the world about the sub-themes Africana and South Asian Philosophies and the values of our education of our public philosophy journal's second release, we call it Turn 2, in November 2021. Together we as students begin to inquire about traditions understudied in Euro-American philosophical institutions while investigating our own assumptions and the way our traditions present these philosophies. Here and beyond, we intend to participate in ameliorating the deficits in representation, respect and resources required to transform our minds and social worlds in search of how to live ethically. Is that? Yes, that should be recording. So, um, for a quick introduction, Dr. Joy James is a professor of political, feminist, and critical theory, holding the Ebenezer Fitch, Fitch Professorship sorry, of Humanities at Williams College. Um, she's written extensively on incarceration and currently focuses on theorizing captive maternals, um, as far as I understand. Um, to start off, could you tell me a little more about how you came to political theory and to your particular interests? Um. Yes, I mean, I can try. I, I, I don't know, how does one come to political theory? I think, you know, engaging or thinking about the world as a political place, right? As a contestation of power. I mean, even from like childhood, you know, you wanna do something your parents say no, right? Or school, like, you know, the teachers have authority, you do not. So your agency gets limited or it, it's mitigated by the demands of others. And that's great when you're actually in line with them in terms of ethics and desires. You know, it's not great <laughs> when um, they express power in authoritarian ways and you then become the subject object, you know, of their decrees or their rules and their policies. So I grew up in a military family. I was born in Frankfurt, Germany. My siblings were born in Texas, in San Antonio, Texas, which if you think about it, it's kind of a, could be looked at as a very large military base. And growing up on military bases, mostly in the South, but um, Fort Monmouth in New Jersey in the North, right? And then my father retiring as a Lieutenant Colonel and our family settling um, in Texas. You know, the issue of power control, the role of the state as an employer, the backdrop of warfare, right? So my father was in Vietnam and he was also in the 101st Airborne, which suggests to me that he was probably deployed to quell the uprisings, some people would call them riots in Detroit. He's probably in a number of invasions. So even though you don't actually talk about power over the dinner table or like, where's dad? What's he doing right now? Um, there's an understanding of policing as like ingrained in the fabric of social life. And so social life then becomes personal life, which is, you know, by extension, political life and militarized. Um, so I would say by the time I was a teenager, I was interested in rebellion and, you know, and part of it started even before my teens, I think it was like 11 when I read my father started to read his books. Um, <coughs> sorry, E. Franklin Frazier's The Black Bourgeoisie, which I believe he wrote when he was working for UNESCO um, in the 1950s. So African-American intellectual who understands the contradictions around power and hegemonic political theory coming from the right schools. He, I believe he was at University of Chicago, perhaps he studied there and then he went to Howard University, which is also known as the alma mater of the incoming vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, right? So this way in which in the books, he questions how the black bourgeoisie or the black middle class 
is an imitation of the white bourgeoisie. We, we just don't have their money, right? But we have the same aspirations and the contradictions. Like if you come from a people who were enslaved for centuries, and then after that had the convict prison lease system where you died at faster rates than you had on plantations because we were jointly owned by corporations and the state in the rebuilding of the South and the Southern economy that was gonna be integrated with um, these huge corporations in, you know, emerging from the North around coal and steel. Um, <clears throat> then you face Jim Crow legislation, you know, prohibition um, to voting, uh, voting at the cost of your life at times, sharecropping, you know, we, you just go on up the stages to um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, then the contradictions of being in the black middle class are all about politics, compliance, or occasionally rebellion. So at 11, I'm reading this book, which shapes eventually my feminism in the future, my suspicion of the black bourgeoisie or the black middle class of academic elites, like who do we work for? Um, having grown up and had, you know, my braces paid for by somebody who worked for the state and its imperial, you know, aggressions and accumulations. Um, that's all the swirl that turned me into the if you can call me a black feminist, that's fine, but turned me into the political thinker that I became. So, <clears throat> you know, I start with the family because it's the site of contradictions, right? Not just around gender, adultism, you know, infantilizing children and teens, but it's a site of contradiction if you work for the state, either private corporation, a corporate state, or if you work literally for the government or specifically for the military. And I've always been a reader. So trying to understand the world through books and admittedly not usually the books that people my age would have been reading. So it varies like from, you know, what, um, for, sorry, the black bourgeoisie, <coughs> to Shakespeare, to the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. I mean, it's like all over the place, right? Um, but in a way you're reading about power that you do not have because you're not allowed to possess it. So as a dark-skinned black girl in the South, you're being um, groomed to be an intellectual outsider. And then the charges, do you want in? or do you wanna break out? So it seems like a contradiction, like you're technically not in, but you're governed by those who set the program, like the teachers, the parents, the principals, then the university professors, the dissertation director, et cetera, et cetera. And so how much do you want in to the extent that your thinking is, is just conformity? And then how much do you want in to the extent that your thinking becomes a rebellion against conformity. So those are kind of the, I'm sure there are other options, but those seem to be the ones that I basically was struggling with in my early years, along with the general sexism, racism, patriarchy, colorism, anti-black aggression, you know, those aspects of life. Mm -hmm. And, I guess, I mean, you, so yeah, you've just, you've just mentioned um, a lot of sort of barriers there and also thought process about, well, okay, do, do I, how, how much do I need to conform to remain here and, and where can I go with this? Um, are there any, like, how did you deal with those obstacles? Um, I don't, you know, I, you know, looking back over decades, I'm not, I'm, I can tell you, I'm not quite sure. I mean, then the question, you know, you introduced me, Ebenezer Fitch, um, who I'm sure was not an anti-racist feminist, whatever century um, Williams was founded, you know, I believe it was the 18th century. Um, so like for me, it's, it's a bit ironic and it's conflicted, meaning these titles and these accumulations, like all the stamps that say, oh, you're a real intellectual and you're a real professor and you teach at a real school, like the emphasis is on real, like what? Who gets to 
define what is real and why does it always look like another manifestation of elitism, right? So I would argue that my whole intellectual development was in some ways, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna say literally a battlefield having grown up in a military family where they actually went to war, where people died. But I would say it was, it was a constant struggle. And I would say even at this point where I'm looking at retirement, it's getting closer and closer. I don't think it's ever been resolved. Like to what extent do you just give in and go with the program, even if you believe it to be unethical and to some extent, it feels like a Ponzi scheme. You know, like you, the smartest people are not in academia. They're just smart people who got the job. You know, they're, they're smart people in all economic classes and stations. It's just the ones that are allowed to have the leisure time to write and then have access to the most prestigious presses um, in order to publish and disseminate their thought, which usually seems to align itself with prevailing norms, right? That those are the ones who almost become, this is, goes back to E. Franklin Frazier and also W.B. Du Bois before that, the notion of the talented 10th. Like, you know, the Du Bois wrote of it as a I'm sure he didn't think of it at 10% only, but that elite among African-Americans who are gonna lead the other 90%. But that whole notion came from the American Home Baptist Missionary Society, which were white philanthropists, wealthy people uh, during the era of the Civil War. And so after the war was fought, 200,000 formerly enslaved people, Black Americans, African Americans fought in that war, which helped the North to win to the extent that it did. I mean, we, we have the resurgence of white supremacy as a norm in the United States. But after the war was won, just to use that cliche phrase, um, what do you do with the, you know emancipated people? And for the missionary, society that was coming largely from the North included um, Henry Morehouse. And he's the namesake of Morehouse College where Martin Luther King Jr. graduated, right? And also I believe Laura Spellman who is a namesake for Spellman College, right? So the elite premier HBCUs or historically black you know, colleges and universities the, the tier one would be Morehouse and Spellman. But as white philanthropists, what they wanted was an educated cadre that would steer a black mass that's impoverished, that's terrorized by the Klan, that <coughs> gains rights that are then stripped away through racist terrorism and these new Jim Crow laws. They wanted a kind of obedience and, um, adherence to the rule of law, even if, even if law was corrupt and anti-Black in its expressions. So I, what I'm speaking to is the fact that to be educated, to attain these degrees for me was always problematic because if you can't have a rebellion for your rights, and I'm sure people saw the protest around joy George Floyd's murder by police, you know, the street protest as a form of rebellion for justice. Like if the point of having educated elites is to school them in a certain kind of civility and decorum that is compatible with existing democracy, I don't quite see how you get the other 90% free, like under that construct, right? So in a way, it's almost like if you don't criminalize political rebellion, and I'm not talking about burning down buildings, but I do know that happens. If <coughs> you don't criminalize it, then you see it as um, a lack of civility and a lack of sophisticated politics. 
So in this recent election, this, you know, this promotion of the Democratic Party as a necessity, and I would agree it's preferable to uh, what um, the former, it's still the, the current administration, they haven't even, Trump has not conceded yet. It's not funny. I just have this nervous laugh when things are going off the rail. But, you know, of course, Joe Biden is preferable to Donald Trump if you actually believe in democracy, even as a concept, right? But in if you look at the specific policies that the Democrats have enacted, right, they have not in large part been beneficial and definitely not liberatory, you know, to impoverished or working class, African-American, Native American, I can just go down the list, put every ethnic group, communities, because the Democratic Party shares the same kind of obedience mandate to corporate power that the Democrat, I'm sorry, that the Republican Party does. So that goes back to the issue of political theory. I mean, do you wanna theorize democracy or do you wanna just accept that it's the holy grail for the liberation of LGBTQ, of children, of you know treating the natural environment as if it had real value other than based on extraction of coal you know, and gas <coughs> and oil? Um, or do you wanna use political theory to unthink the norms or to think against the norms? So I don't think it's enough to be a feminist theorist or a critical race theorist or a socialist theorist, um, or at least a democratic socialist theorist, which is more the norm in the United States than actual socialist. I don't think it's enough unless you're willing to understand the value of resistance and rebellion, right? I actually am starting to think in an environment in which uniformity in thinking, conformity in thinking is rarely challenged without being um, punished. And I'm not talking about the far right. In a way they seem like they're, um, such an aberration, but I would argue if, if you looked at the way black and indigenous people have been treated in centuries, for centuries in the United States, their aggressions are not aberrational, they're, they're a norm. It's just like white people weren't largely the victim of their malfeasance in their lives, right? So now that white people are becoming more, you know, realizing, oh, the democracy doesn't wait, work the way we thought it did, an electoral college not um, the majority of votes, but the electoral college, which actually in some part is tied to rape, the three-fifth clause, right? Three-fifths of an enslaved person constitutes one unit of representation. So I've said often then Sally Hemings, who at 14 encountered Thomas Jefferson in France, um, where she was supposed to go to kind of be a chaperone for her um, nieces who were white and because her mother was uh, enslaved um, woman of African descent then Sally Hemings was not. But every time she had a baby by Thomas Jefferson, every time someone got pregnant on a plantation, they were expanding the electoral college base for Southern white men who could be president. And if this kind of mass exploitation, mass rape is baked into your democracy, like its origins, right? Then there are gonna be repercussions um, throughout generations. And so the way I look at it is that democracy cannot be a holy grail, at least not US democracy. The way you think critically has to have an aspect of dissent and rebellion in order to discover what is ethical and what is possible outside the official rule book. Does that make sense?
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I wonder how, for you, how, how you and your kind of, um, how you've come to where you are now in academia, how have you, um, well, you've mentioned now and you've um, also mentioned in the past how sort of academic academia can be very, or is just very limiting. Um, for example, when you talk about academic abolitionism, how it's very, um, there's, well, almost this hegemony there. Um, and how have you dealt with kind of the limits of how far you're theorizing within the academy can go and how how you would like to go beyond that? Um, is that yeah. something that you've always always achieved or? I, th- I don't know if I've achieved anything, right? I only know that I've tried. And when I hear other people, I know that, well, what we have in common is we talk a lot about our isolation. And I guess that would be a form of loneliness in the academy, right? It's not as if, again, like if we understand that the intent of our labor is to question, you know, like the cliche phrase in the 60s or 70s, I believe was question authority, right? (coughs) But if we understand that the reason we're working is to actually point to the contradictions in order to clarify the possibilities. That's not welcomed, right? And that, I don't even think that wasn't even in the job description when we were hired. Like we brought it saying, oh, this is a plus and a bonus. We're just like gonna question everything or we're gonna challenge what we think is not ethical. We think it's like racist or sexist or homophobic. We're gonna call it out. And people like, that's not what we hired you for. And so it was, I've met so many people on all like undergrads, graduate students, people finishing their dissertation, mostly women, but also some men who just wanted to articulate what they saw in terms of power, in terms of betrayal, and in terms of a need for greater ethics and to be disciplined to a a higher standard, right? And who simply stay mute because it's, you know, I've heard things like, I need a letter to get a job, or I need this person to stay, stay on my dissertation committee, or I need to get published and I've pissed off this really important scholar who I don't even agree with, but you know, if I really irritate them, then there's a possibility I'll be banned from, you know, these prestigious journals or, oh my God, I said something at a conference and then, you know, this senior professor calls me up and lectures me for three hours as a woman who is not tenured. And I was like, well, why don't you just say, oh, there's a lot of static. I can't hear you. And then like hang up the phone. But they don't because they're disciplined for they're disciplined to be disciplined, right? It's just like I'm like, yo, man, don't call me. Like, click, right? But that's not what the majority do. And I'm not faulting them for that. And I'm I'm going back to my origin story. I grew up with people who fought wars for an empire. That is not the most ethical gig. But in their defense, they did leave the military to try to find a job. And even with a college degree, which was kind of rare actually for African-Americans at the time, could not except for washing dishes somewhere, right? So I see all of this as the zone of compromise. The question becomes how compromised do you wanna be in order to attain economic security and some level of, seeing yourself as a white collar worker. Maybe the next time there's a pandemic, you can stay home instead of being what I call expendable essential workers. So I think there's a lot of abuse in the academy. I'm not saying it's like the abuse that happens in certain churches, right? Um, But there's a lot of abuse and it's gendered and it's shaped by race and ethnicity. But what often is not talked about, it's also shaped by ideological 
you know, mandates that if you conform to a sort of corporate state norm, then your ethnicity and gender can be used to discipline those who refuse, right? Because it's, it's, you know, this is what I said when I think I was on with you guys earlier for the Oxford conversation. Like I was talking about Condoleezza Rice and if I understand correctly, I'll just say allegedly in case I don't, but Rice's recruitment to Stanford was in part to you know, discipline or curtail women's studies and ethnic and black studies. And a white man would have gotten a lot of flack for that, but a black woman doing it could probably get away with it. And then later, you know, if you're promoting what should have been an illegal invasion in Iraq under false pretenses of charges of weapons of mass destruction, I mean, I don't know who that stuck to as much of it should from Dick Cheney to George Bush to Condoleezza Rice to Colin Powell, but somehow being a black woman, that sort of becomes a shield to certain kinds of critiques around predatory ideologies and practices, right? So <clears throat> the academy is the intellectual wing of the state. And if you have a state that is progressive and doesn't believe in empires and has a critique of monopoly capitalism, then I don't think that's a bad thing to be the intellectual wing of that kind of state. My position is the United States is not that kind of state. Mm, nevertheless, in sort of, well, so far in academia, have, have there been any more well, positive surprises or just um, expectations that about where you thought you couldn't theorize something with, with well, well, have, yeah, have there been any um, positive surprises developments and how far your your studies and your theorizing can go um, that you didn't expect when you started out? Um, well, I have to pause. <laughs> So obviously there probably were not a lot of surprises. Um, the, okay, let me use not me, but another, some colleagues I know. So Afro-pessimism, right? So I think I've said this a number of times, but anyway, when I was, uh, I went to Brown University as a full professor, I used my private research to bring former political prisoners, political rebels to campus. That, caused quite a stir. But also on the panels I had to serve to you know speak from the panel, I had invited two graduate students who became the architects of Afro-pessimism, Jared Sexton and Frank Wilderson. I was surprised years later uh, what they and the black feminists, and they're not all black, I've met white Afro-pessimists, Asian Afro-pessimists, still kind of wrapping my head around the concept. But what they were able to do in the academy in terms of codifying a school of thought that rejected the norms, right? And <clears throat> to the extent that Wilderson has a book out, which is sort of a popularized memoir, about Afro-pessimism, about his formation development, and has recently been named a chancellor chair, then that, I thought that, well, that's unusual, you know? And actually people have said the same thing to me from how is it that you even have a job to like, oh, that's unusual, that you, you got an endowed chair somewhere or that the Ivy League hired you, right? It's sort of like, like the presentation of our politics supposedly make us pariah. And I'm not saying I have the same politics as Afro-pessimism, but I have the same appreciation for rebellion against what I see to be predatory cultures, right? And deception, right? You know, sort of people telling you that they're not harming you while they are actually harming you, you know, and getting you to believe that, oh no, they're just trying to help me by making me a better person, by teaching me how to conform to these 
rules and regulations that actually do not serve uh, communities, you know, mass communities, non-elite communities. So the surprise is that we are still employed, but we're not the only ones surprised by that. So I keep hearing. And um, we're still employed because we care about our students, because we teach not to be popular, but teach to be relevant in a country full of crises and that because of its military and its budget can create crises in other countries, right? Like AFRICOM, <clears throat> and I've already mentioned, you know, destabilizing parts of the Middle East through the invasion um, following 9-11. So the beautiful thing, I can't speak for other people, but the beautiful thing that I see in the academy is, and it doesn't happen every day, right? But there is a beauty to it. When you see students ask you questions that sound like they're struggling, not with grasping materials so they can quote master it and then become the expert and then move up the ranks and get their gig or additional degrees, but they're struggling because they really wanna comprehend the way that nothing fits the way they were told it would fit, right? Like it's almost, when I think about the university or the academy as um, a replacement for the parental authority, right? That like while you're there, they're supposed to be raising you and polishing you off. So it's the last of the finishing schools that have been going on way too long. But when you realize that a lot of what you were told was grooming and it wasn't necessarily an accurate description of how much violence and corruption there is and how hard we would have to work to care about the world in which we weren't always the center of, right? That we would have like, this is a thing when you have leisure time and wealth and privilege to read most of the day and then write the rest of the day. Um, I mean, the understanding that most people in the world don't live this way, that you live this way not because you're exceptional. I mean, you live this way because you had access to resources and you plugged into structures. Now, the, whether or not the structures actually divested from South African apartheid or Palestinian occupations, or like the question is, where do you make your money for your university? I mean, what's their portfolio look like? It's like forest devastation in the Amazon. Like those kinds of questions were not really encouraged to think about, right? And the beauty to keep going back is when people realizing you know, there's, we're not super, we don't have superpowers like all that Marvel stuff that keeps coming out on a regular basis, but we do have an intellectual capacity that can express not just compassion, but a certain kind of concern tied to a steely determination to do something. And I think once you see people wake up or they're already awake, but become more awake to the fact that they have the capacity to be political actors, but in order to do so, they have to have political philosophy and political theory, then that's like a good day because the conversations shift from being the zone of consumption or mastery to being intimate in some ways. Like, oh my gosh, this is so effing scary, but like, how do we talk about it? Do we even have a vocabulary that can describe what's going on? And then how do we address that? So the last thing maybe I'll say about the Afro-pessimists, I mean, they created a vocabulary, right? Um, they, they keep saying, we won't tell you what to do about it. But I think just the fact that they took the time to be architects of a certain kind of political theory that refused to compromise with existing norms, that became the gift itself. 
how much you want to engage in that or other forms that of thinking, right? That trouble the water, you know, as sort of black spiritual culture uses that reframe, like trouble the water, right? Things have to be turbulent sometimes in order for you to be able to move forward. That, that sometimes is the best that it gets in the academy. I know other people would say, and it's nice too, to get a book contract, to get a book award, to hit the bestseller list. Like basically I've had, you know, I can get a book contract, the other two, not really. Um, like that becomes a highlight. And I, I'm like, good, that's great. But when I see people become very conscious of contradictions, I, for me, that's reassuring because I actually believe they're going to do something. I have no idea what it's gonna be, don't really care, it's none of my business, but I have a sense that they know they need to do something. They need to learn more. And then with that learning, be able to contribute more. Mm. Again, you've uh, mentioned again, the sort of the compromises that um, students and also academics have to face and, and, and grapple with and, and constantly are, are confronted with. Um, do you have any advice to, well, I guess, undergraduate students um, or any student of, of political theory really um, in dealing with those compromises and yeah that's it you know <laughs> I'm gonna be honest yeah don't don't take advice from me <laughs> just like I mean I literally was so offended when I was getting my dissertation and I wrote on Hannah Arendt right a feminist critique of her um analysis of communication, right? Democracy is communicative. I was so offended when I was trying to talk at the time about the um, apartheid in South Africa by the questions that came to me and how and the way I was challenged, not just by my intellectual, you know, performance, you know, I just put that in air quotes, but also by about my ethics that I was like, okay, when this is done, I'm done. And so I'll, I would say, of course I passed, not just because I had the degree, but I knew I, would, I knew what I was talking about, right? And Hannah Arendt was a liberal. It's not like it was like black militancy or anything like that, that was like prohibited. So never had a black studies course in my life, right? And never had black faculty teach me until I did a post, I, did a postdoc, I went to seminary to work with Cornell West and James Cohn. And they, they were my first black professors and that had been decades of schooling. But I was so offended by these challenges that I considered to be so unethical. And it's not just I considered they were, and it was racist. Um, I walked with a degree and I never asked for a letter. So that's why you don't take advice from me because if you, you're so indignant that you just like, forget this. I mean, you know, this is, I don't even have the words for it. I, I'm, I'm surprised I'm still really upset by this, but yeah, I mean, how would you get a job? I mean, I eventually I did get one, but I ended up working for NGO at, you know, at the UN for a while, the UN, um, Women's Center in Manhattan, across from the United Nations. I taught in seminaries part-time. And then I went to seminary after a trip <coughs> to Nairobi, um, you know, in reflection on the international politics and attempts to have nuclear detente and, you know, women's rights advocacy, children's rights advocacy. Um, so I went to seminary and then after seminary, I tried again, then I got my first academic job in women's studies at UMass Amherst. But, you know, I, I'm not the only one who did something like that. There are a number of people who just quit the academy, who were disgusted. That's the verb I was, that's the word I was looking for. It was, it's like disgust. You know, the, the noun, just like, what are you feeling? What's the emotional register? It's disgust. I mean, it's, yeah, I've I read everything Hannah Arendt ever wrote. 
that it wasn't always fun, you know, and then to read other people she was reading, but there's an integrity to the intellect. And it's, it's in fact, not surely an abstract notion of integrity. Like you just have to be coherent and do work at an above, you know, average, you know, standard. It's integrity that you're thinking, this is my position. Your thinking has to have relevance to the well being of community. And the community can't be your small group of Nazi friends. It can't be your drinking buddies who have a proclivity to sexual abuse and raping people. Like you're, the community has to be this larger formation. And if all those years that you toiled as a graduate student, you know, basically, you know, a second class citizen in the academy, right? If those years of sacrifice, which it sounds like, it, that seems like a contradiction because it's, oh, you, be, you can be in the library, you have the leisure time to do white collar labor stuff. But yeah, but it's also without being literally the military, it's a highly disciplined sector which demands conformity and deference to people in higher ranks. So like, what's the difference between a sergeant and a lieutenant and a captain and a lieutenant colonel? Like clearly these are ranking, you know, um, metrics that are not always shaped by the integrity or the value or the intellect of the people who made it to sergeant, lieutenant, captain, lieutenant colonel. It's just like, you have to follow the rules because quote, they're in charge. So, you know, all those years of deference to faculty who probably were sexist and racist and classist, and I could add some more ISTs in their descriptors. That was the objective of not just getting the degree, but being a good um, potential colleague for the future or a good graduate student which, you know, it's kind of cheesy, but it's like being a quote, good girl, which is really creepy if you think about it, right? And so it's like, what the, you know, I'd like spent all these years doing all this, showing up to class when I'm bored and listening to all this, you know, racist drivel here and like having to read these conservative political theorists who clearly were white chauvinists, if not white supremacists, and then the dissertation where I'm just like in a sideline, just trying to say apartheid's bad, right? it just becomes problematic. And I was like, I don't want your letter. But other people said, I don't even want this job. And so I think that we've, I think the Academy has probably lost some brilliant thinkers and passionate, you know, people who care about the world just because they couldn't stomach the environment. Yeah, that, that um, makes, well, is, is awful, um, but, but makes sense in that, well, like the way you've explained it. Um, well, you, you teach undergraduate students, right? Um, mm -hmm. As well. Um, and you've already said to not, not take advice from you, um, but is there, <laughs> Is there anything that you deliberately do as a as a teacher, as a professor, to um, kind of break out of this very disciplined? Is that possible, or is that something that you? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done it. I've always done it in different ways, right? I've been doing this job for decades, right? It's just like, yay, retirement. But like when I was teaching women's studies at UMass Amherst. And then when, you know, in the women's studies classroom and then the students were complaining like, why are we reading all this literature by women of color as if they were not women? And I was like, look, I mean, I've, I've got limits too, right? So I'm gonna give you the option because you're speaking as if, and this is predominantly obviously white students, you know, dominated the campus and women's studies at the time. I believe I was the first black hire and women's studies at UMass Amherst, if not the first 
woman of color to be hired in the history of their department. And so <coughs> I was teaching a lot of memoirs, right? The Native American women, um, Latinas, um, Asian women, African-American women, particularly political ones, such as Angela Davis's autobiography and Asada Shakur's autobiography. And so, and I was also teaching white women as well. So it's like a multi, we're doing multicultural, multiracial. That's just like basic liberalism, like, you know, get over it. But the complaints kept going and I was like, okay, look, I'm gonna give everybody an A. Now you can show up or you can leave. But if the point here is to learn and you're saying that there's an impediment to your learning and somehow you feel that I as a black um, progressive that I will, you know, negatively judge you by the racist things you say in the classroom and to the few students of color who are here, then I just like, here's your, it's like Donald Trump, right? In the pardons, like here, free pass, right? You can show, you cannot show. I mean, you obviously you can't use racial slurs here, but you all get an A. And then let's see if you're committed because you say you're so committed but I'm impeding your learning process. Well, after they all got their A's, I can tell you everybody else, I mean, the, the, all the class did not return, but the people who stayed were amazing because they weren't there for the grade. They were actually there to learn. Like, so if this is a kind of carrot stick saying, I don't even have a stick because that would be abuse. And I don't have any carrots because I just gave them all out, right? So you each got an organic carrot called an A, and now you can come and actually be an intellectual who has ethics and figure out how we collectively do this. And the people who stayed, I remember some of the narratives, none of the names, right? But you know, one white woman who was near um, tears saying that she was learning so much that she dreaded going home for the holidays because if she actually said what she believed in terms of how white supremacy and misogyny operated, she would no longer have a family. And, you know, I was honest, I don't, I, you know, I could not, I don't know how to comfort people who've evolved into more conscious and ethical beings I do not know how to comfort them in terms of their loss because I don't believe you can evolve into a more ethical, political being without having losses, without being ostracized, without being marginalized in some ways. But, you know, that struck me like that encounter. Um, some of the black women who were at the university interacting with them outside of the classroom, that was, that was kind of amazing too, because I was also learning from them. Um, at Brown, <coughs> well, first at the University of Colorado Boulder, I wrote about doing um, a prototype for critical resistance at the request of Angela Davis. So organizing with the undergrad students there, um, the black students who really um, found the campus, which was mostly elite and white, problematic because of its racism, but we were determined that this conference was gonna go off well. It was the largest one that C.E. Boulder had done at the time, um, but who as working class black students felt first generation, right, college, university, totally alienated on campus. But then there was a cadre of white affluent students who came to me and said, we're organizing, they'd been donating their, their labor, um, but they're like, we're gonna miss class or something. And they were actually skipping classes to organize. So, and I was, and I was like, what's the problem? Thinking that white affluent people don't have problems, right? Even though it's rhetorical, what's the problem? Like meaning like show up to class. And they explained that the FBI wanted to interview them. It's not that they want to, the FBI wants to talk to you, talk to the FBI. So they had to go into the Denver office, to the Denver office because they had 
known people who were doing environmental liberation activism. So ELF, the Environmental Liberation Front, I believe the United States classified most progressive left, you know, put it on a, some kind of terrorist list the way they've been trying to do that with Black Lives Matter, right? But they had been, um, yes, assaulting property, like trophy homes being built in pristine environments, the devastation of lands and water. And I was like, oh yeah, so white affluent, you know, this is the way I get blinded sometimes too, and I don't see it as clearly. White affluent students are engaged in struggle as well. They also take risk as well. And so these were all educational moments for me. And then Brown was probably the capping, well, the capstone. Um, so coming out of that conference, as I've said before, I, um, did an anthology, States of Confinement, had you know works by a number of those people who attended, largely academics, exception of Davis, who was both academic and a former political prisoner. And I got 50 copies to mail inside to incarcerated people, so inside to prisons, and got a letter back from a Black Panther, Black Liberation Army detainee who actually got out last October after serving 49 years in prison, saying that the academic work that I thought I was being very useful and helpful in producing was not that relevant. So then when I left CU Boulder to go to Brown, I was determined to write um, about and anthologize the most vulnerable of the radicals. Those people who had disappeared into prisons and who were being tortured and who presumably were gonna die there. I don't agree with all their choices, but I understood they saw themselves at war and based on what COINTELPRO was doing, which was, you know, illegally killing activists and nobody was, you know, going to jail around any of this, um, they made certain choices. And so it was at Brown, I think, that I took the greatest risk. That's when I decided to invite people who'd been in the Weather Underground, people who'd been the Black Panther Party, people who had been in the Republic of New Africa, people aligned with the American Indian Movement, people who'd been in the Puerto Rican Independentista Movement, you know, so on and so forth. And um, as I said, when we started, used my personal research funds to do this, and the Afro-pessimist graduate students came from California. And that's, my students helped organize that event. And the two to three anthologies that came out of the years that I stayed at Brown and I left because you know the political climate wasn't that hospitable. Um, that was driven in part by student intellect and student agency. So if you look at imprisoned intellectuals, they did the biographies on George Jackson, on other people, um, pacifists and non-pacifists. And I think that would be the height of teaching in which students taught me. And taking the risk, like even talking to some students who were interested in the world and I would say, well, have you thought about visiting Cuba as well? It was legal, you know, I had gone a couple of times. And they're saying to me, um, I am gonna go to law school or graduate school at Harvard. I mean, they already knew before they got in. And my father will not pay for it if I go to Cuba. And I was like, okay, that my, my um, era and even suggesting that, that's why I'm saying I don't give advice, right? So I think that the students that we have are aware of the contradictions and the betrayals from the climate devastation to these ongoing wars to the differential death rates around COVID, to new forms of authoritarianism. I think, I, you know, they're quite bright. They actually know what's going on. I think the question becomes whether or not they feel somebody needs to give them permission or give them advice to act on the knowledge they already have. I don't give advice because I only know smart people 
including people who never went to college, right? And the best I can do is listen and maybe echo back to them some of the things that they've expressed, which are of concern to them, or some of the things that they're willing to challenge. I, I don't think other than like a career officer or official, he's supposed to help you climb the rungs of the ladder. I don't think advice is useful. I think solidarity is. That's, um, I think that's a good, that's a good place to finish this. Um, oh yeah, I don't wanna keep you um, for any longer, but you've said so many um, interesting things and I'm gonna listen back to this and probably have um, lots of things to, to think about. Um, There's one thing I would add Charlotte, cause I know like when I'm talking, it sounds like really like a oh, grim and ride or die kind of thing. Um, <coughs> In an interesting way, that's my word is interesting. I am hopeful. No, I am confident that we will respond to the crises, whether or not it's as many people as we would hope, you know, to be in solidarity with us. Um, yeah, that's not on the hope list, but the certainty list is that we, in different sectors, like the affluent students who are working on environmental issues um, because they understand the existential threat of that, um, the other students who are working on um, police killings of civilians because they understand the existential threat of that, right? The sex trafficking of women and children, um, like we're all laboring include on both the intellectual and the physical level to sort of stabilize the world that we have to live in and to allow it to be a more beautiful one. And I see that happening all around. So as much as I have a critique of the academy, it has allowed me the leisure time, the extra time because I do have a roof over my head. I can like buy my groceries. I have stable economic um, cushion um, or foundation. It has allowed me to use my time for social justice. And that actually is the most beautiful thing about the academy, that whatever skills you acquire, you can redirect them right, to help people in ways that do not reproduce the cage. And so that, okay, so I'm glad we're doing this because <laughs> that's actually like, oh yeah, that's why I've had this job for decades, right? It's that it's allowed me to practice my beliefs without being consumed right, by a machine. And I've met beautiful people. And so the Black Internationalist Unions, which is mostly Black women academics, we're on the Abolition Collective, so we have this site. Like since COVID started, we've been organizing and writing and trying to amplify the voices of the most vulnerable people. And it's like, if I've emailed you back and forth, you'll see like in blue, the BIUs.com under my name, that's where the link is. And those sisters are fierce. And they're much, most of them much younger than I. And I can't help smiling because, you know, it's a good time to recede because all the young people and the young women, the young black women who are stepping up are very principled and they don't compromise just because they've been intimidated. They compromise because it's a necessity as a political strategy in the moment before you have another strategy that will garner greater benefits for the greater good. Yeah, that's okay. Um, a, an, even, an even better point to end, I think. Um, and yeah, thank you for those um, last last words. 
Um, I, yeah, like I said, I have a lot to think about, I think. Um, but um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and also for taking the time to, to speak to OPP last term. Yeah, I hope um, in the current mess <laughs> that everything is, um, that, that things, things go okay. Thanks, yeah. and I wish you well. Take care, Charlotte. Thank you. Bye, I'll be in touch. <laughs> Thanks, bye-bye. for making room for the possibility of strengthening, broadening or contesting